At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Job chapter 13, verse 15 says this, Though he slays me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Dear Lord, we thank you right now for who you are. Father, as we transition into your word, we ask, Father, that you would do what only you can do, King Jesus, when you walk into a room. Father, would you have your way in this time and in this space? Father, would we know as we're journeying through this series called Lamentations, good morning, Father, that is, we ask, Father, that we would know, though you slay us, God, we will praise you. Though you slay us, we will still lift you up above every name, and that is the name above all names, that is the name of Jesus. Father, that no matter what we go through, no matter the trials, the tribulations, it's worth it. Father, no matter what season we may be in in life, even right now, Father, we can still look in the midst of pain, trials and tribulations, and lift you up above pain, lift you up above any circumstance. Father, lift you up. Because, Father, we know, Father, that's nothing in this world that happens to us by happenstance. But, Father, it all happens because you're working something in us and through us and for our good. We love you today, Jesus. And Father, we ask that as we continue on and break your bread right now, Father, that you would open our hearts, soften our hearts to what it is that you would have us to receive in this space and in this time. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the honor and glory, King Jesus, to you and you alone. Church, if you believe that, go ahead and put your hands together and shout amen, amen, and amen. As you guys know, we're in Lamentations. We're in a series called Good Good Morning. Oh, look, it's right there. You guys did so well. Hey, I'm going to invite Effie on up. Everybody make some noise for Ephraim. As you guys know, every fifth Sunday, uh, it's not only a family worship service. So for anybody that's here for the first time, you're like, why are these kids in here crying? Because it's meant to be. All right. So a part of that is uh, not only do we have a service where we all just come together and worship God together uh, every fifth Sunday, but we also have our young people doing uh, many things, as you just seen, the liturgical dance. And, and right now we're going to have Ephraim uh, read the word of God for us. So if you guys want to turn to Lamentations chapter 2. And Ephraim will read uh, the scriptures here for us. Lamentations 2. How the Lord, the, wait, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy. 
all the habitations of Jacob in his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of our daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his both like a garden. Laid in ruins his meeting place, the Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. In the fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her places. They raised a clamor in the south of the Lord, as on the day of the festival. The Lord determined to lay the ruins of the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and all in the wall to lament. They languished together. Now, Lamentations 2, 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out the, his word, which he commanded long ago, which he has thrown down without pity. 19. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like the water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of the children who faint for hunger at the end of every street. Amen. Thank you, Effie. So as I've said already, and as you know, if you were here last week, we started a new series called Good Morning, Taking Our Sorrow to the Savior. And this week, we're in week two of that series, and today's message is entitled, When God Becomes the enemy. It's an interesting concept to hear and or uh, ponder upon, uh, but we'll get just there in just a second and you could see uh, why that's our um, title and big idea for today. But before we do so, I want to just go back. Now, I know I might look old, but I'm really not. Um, and for some of you, you were living in 1941. And in 1941, December 7th of 1941, many of you know that our country suffered a gut punch, if you will. Many of you know that there's a story and a reality that we faced as a nation when 90 Japanese aircraftmen bombed Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. It was a gut punch for our nation. It was a gut punch for our country. Devastation, destruction, disaster. All of these things taking place right before our eyes. And who was to blame? The Japanese. Speed that story forward just a little bit. To majority of us in this room, we were alive for this, and it was 2001. Many of you remember what it was like. Maybe you were young, maybe you were 
where you are now and you remember that 9-11 took place. For me, I remember exactly where I was. I remember sitting in class and the TV was on and all the teachers getting yelled at because the television was on. And as young kids, we weren't supposed to see that. But the reality is, we've lived it. We've seen it. We remember that gut punch to our nation. And who was to blame? Al-Qaeda. With the leader of the name of Osama bin Laden, we can look at that incident and say it's because of them that this has happened. But let me ask you this, church. What happens when you are going through so much turmoil, so much destruction or chaos, if you will, and you're looking for someone to blame? Who do you blame? Who who do you turn to? And we find ourselves in the text today and we're learning that, was it God who did this? When we read this text, guys, it isn't a peaceful, peachy text, if you will. It's not your, for God so loved the world text. It's not your, uh, uh, in seven days he did this. It's not uh, the stars, the moon. It's none of that stuff that we know of the body, of the Bible, that we can get excited about. Or like, oh yeah, that's amazing. It's actually one of the texts, if you will, that we all shy away from. The reality of this text is forces us to realize something that all of us for many years have tried to put on the back burner. And that reality is, is that we serve a two-sided coin God, if you will. The one side of the coin that we're also used to is his grace, his mercy, his love. Notice how I started smiling when reflecting these natures of God. But how many of us smile when we're faced with the reality that God is just? God brings wrath. God hates sin. And in this text, we're looking just at that here today. And oftentimes, church, I hate to say it, but it's true. You and I like to forget the fact that God hates sin. We like to forget the fact that God is justifiable when dealing with us or the world about sin. And we find ourselves here in the text here today looking just at that. Our big idea for today would be this. When God becomes the enemy, we must cry out. Point number one today would be this. God is righteous in pouring out his anger. God is righteous in pouring out his, ang- uh, his anger. Verse number 1 through 4 and 17 says this. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down the ground in dishonor, the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in the eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. Verse 17, 
The Lord has done what he has purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He is thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the mighty of your foes. We can clearly see through verse 1 through 4 and verse 17, if you will, that God is completely angry, church. Say it one time. It's okay to say it. God is angry. We have to get to this reality and realize that God is angry. And some of you might be sitting here saying, why, on the world is, why in the world is this loving God that we love and we serve? Why is he angry and how does he get the right to be angry? Well, the reality is God is specifically ticked off with Israel. And he's ticked off with Israel and he's angry with Israel because God can be, first of all, and second of all, He's commanded them to do something for so many years, and yet and still, they disobey him. We know that through Moses, God stepped into a covenant relationship with Israel. Exodus chapter 19 tells us this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Through the covenant, God enters a special, specific relationship with Israel, and God promises Israel he would protect them, he would keep them, his hand would be upon them, and he promised them all of these many different things, but we see through Exodus, Lamentations, and other scriptures that God never let that promise go. Yet and still, while God was keeping his word, Israel never kept their word. And so while God is continuously being faithful, while God is continuously keeping his hand upon his people, while God is providing, making ways out of no ways and doing all of these things he said that he would do, you still get a stubborn people like Israel who continuously disobeys and worship other gods. God sent numerous prophets and people in his name to repent and turn back. That was the message constantly. Repent and turn back to me. But no, they never did listen. And for this, we find ourselves looking at this, that God has had enough. Somebody say enough is enough. God had enough with Israel and its sin and their disobedience. You see, God's holiness has been offended, and now God is angry. And in, in Israel, in this moment, now has to endure the wrath of God, the judgment of God, because God is holy. God is holy, and he's justifiably and righteously angry at the presence of sin among his people. This beautiful thing that we get to see here is this metaphor that lament uh, uh, how God's disappointment or his disposition, if you will, to Israel has changed from being uh, uh, with them to against them. God has removed Israel from his presence. Israel is now under a cloud, and this cloud can signify or be represented as his judgment. In other Old Testament, in other t uh, uh, old scriptures of the Old Testament, uh, 
Testament, mercy, and Exodus 13 and 19, you see that God is remaining uh, the head of Israel, and he's calling them to this place. He's letting them know, I am your God, I am above you, and I will protect you, I will do all of these things. And now we see God going away from that, and them stepping into a cloud, if you will. Just imagine right now if you go outside and it's beautiful and it's sunlight. What happens when a cloud comes? It gets dark. You know there's a storm coming. You know there's some winds coming. You know you might be drenched if you're not covered, right? And God was this covering to Israel. And yet and still now he's placed them under a cloud, if you will. Because of their disobedience, God is also removing his protection over Israel. God told, uh, uh, Isaiah, uh, told Israel in Isaiah 41 this. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. But now, because of their sins, God has withdrawn that hand. God has now put a cloud over them. Because in his wrath, he has broken down strongholds. In his wrath, he is making all things right. And this beautiful thing comes out of this text that we see in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, we see that God becomes uh, the attacker, if you will. Oftentimes, or just like we just talked about Pearl Harbor, you can blame on the Japanese. 9-11, you can blame on uh, Al-Qaeda and, and Osama bin Laden. But in this moment, what are the people to say in this moment? Because honestly, it was the Babylonians who did it. It was the Babylonians who came in and captivated them and took them into a captivity. But here's this interesting thing that we see, that it's God, the attacker, because he bent his bow like an enemy to them. God's right hand once was a sure defense is now in the hand of the enemy archer and taking aim with his bow towards them and with arrows. You see, God has Israel in his sight and he unleashes his wrath on Israel and Jerusalem and he utterly allows it to be destroyed God's fire was once was a symbol of his presence and blessing but now because of their sin and rebellion it's now turned to and being burned as a consuming fire to their whole city, burning everything down. Could you imagine a fire being lit and it's a sign of his presence? And that non-consuming fire turns into a consuming fire that now takes everything and burn it. This is what they're experiencing, church. But the beautiful thing about it again is though the Babylonians are doing this, God is instructing us and reminding us that he's the one behind it all. Verse 17 says this, the Lord has done what he has purposed. He has carried out his words which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. You see, the purpose, church, of Lamentations chapter 2 is not to inform us about God's holiness, his wrath, and or even his judgment. And the purpose is not to have us intellectually understand this side of God. No, this moment of judgment is for us to be studying. 
This is for us, church, to look at and understand the purpose of this passage. And the purpose of this passage is for us not to go back into this mindset. You see, the people of God had everything that they ever needed. He was providing for them. He was dwelling with them. He was speaking to them. He was present and all of these things, yet and still, they still allow culture and materialistic things to get in their way and block their view of who their God was. God continuously sent a reminder, hey, repent, hey, turn from this, turn from that, yet and still, they're still idolizing things or not doing what they are asked to do, and all of this is taking place, and yet and still, they rebel. It's like going to a museum, and if you were to go to a museum and you were to go, let's say the Natural History of America Museum in Washington, D.C., if you were to go to that place, you would go and you would look at everything about our country and be like, wow, that's great, or that's great, or man, that's sad that happened, but this is great. Like, you get a moment to reflect on our country. But this lamentation text isn't for us to watch all of that and be happy about it. It's actually for us to take a step further if you were to go to a Holocaust museum. You would dare not go to a Holocaust museum and say, man, look at this and look at that. This is great. This is this. No, you would look at it and say, man, I never want to see that again. Man, I, I never want that to be a reality for our world again. What's the difference of the two museums? Well, one museum, you can look in its splendor and the greatness of all these things and stuff like that. And then you step over to the Holocaust and you, you lament. You realize you don't want to see that again. You don't want that. Well, so is it also for this text that we're looking at. When we look at this text, it's not to realize that God is mad and he angry or we want you to understand the other side of the coin like, I'm pissed at you. It's not that, church. No, the reality is to realize that God hates sin and this is a reality when you are living in sin that there are consequences. You see, the people of Israel, in, uh, of the Jews, I'm sorry, in this moment, of Israel, it was about 586 BC. And I'm guaranteeing you that none of them realized that this would ever happen to them. Their reality was that they lost the fear of God. But their self centered ways in thinking that because we're his chosen people, God could never. God would never. Oh, God couldn't strike us down. We're his chosen. Oh, God would never do that to us because we're his chosen nation. They got conceited. They got so uh, hard on themselves that they hardened their hearts and realized they were worshiping other things and things like that. It sounds like this is a moment for you and I to check in and realize this could be our culture today. If you and I in the church, the global church, if you will, were to never take the necessary steps when God is putting before us signs and, and he's talking to us and he's speaking to us on what he desires of us. This could be our very well reality. This is a moment for us to check in and say, man, not only does God hate sin so much, but also there's no one prone to his hand. There's no one, God isn't a, a God who sits high and look low and say, oh, you get it, you get it, and not them. No, everybody gets it. Let's, let's pay attention here to, verse, uh, to, to point number two. Uh, it is God is exhaustive in dealing with our sin. God is exhaustive in dealing with our sin. Lamentations 5 through 8. The Lord has become like an enemy. 
He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and he is a fear, he, and in his fierce indignation has sprung king and priests. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised, in, raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of his daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. To languish together. The thing that we clearly see in this text is that God did not have pity on this group or that group. It wasn't social, economical, it wasn't race, it wasn't status, it wasn't house. He didn't care if it was uh, them of, of Zion or of Jacob or of Judah. They all were guilty, church. It also did not matter if they were a king, a ruler, or a priest. Everyone was guilty of sin against God. And to deal with the sin, God then had to become like an enemy in order to uh, pull forth what he was calling out of her, this church, this place, this city, if you will. Crazy thing about it is, is oftentimes we feel like because uh, this is a clear uh, example of association. Right? It's an association, right? You, you feel like because I am God's people, I am this, I am that, I'm excused because, no, 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 the whole city was ruined. They all were falling into these things, and all of these things are uh, 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 signified that God was with his people. God was with them so much that he was talking to them, sending them prophets. He was con- trying to convince them that all of these things that were going to happen were going to happen if they didn't stop. He warned them. He let them know. The people of God were no longer concerned with their sin, and they believed they were invincible. The warnings didn't matter anymore. The sirens weren't buzzing anymore. None of the signs were affecting them anymore. They thought because they had gone so long without being in trouble that they were invincible of his hand. But as you see clearly in the text, God is systematically destroying everything the people looked upon, their gods, their idols, their cities, all the things that they felt were going to protect them and shield them. God literally allowed all of this to take place and destroy the very things of this city, the gates, the temples, the priests, the kings, the rulers. He allowed it all to be ruined, all because of sin. When we come upon verse number eight and looking at this depressing thing taking place, you and I get to see that this is not uh, what God really wanted for his people. But because it happened, 
because they sinned, God then had to do something to redeem his people again. This odd, this odd concept comes with wrath and love. Parents, how many parents I have in the room? How many of you are sick and tired of being sick and tired of telling your kids to do the same thing? I could just leave. That was the sermon right there. <laughs> this crazy concept. Just as much as you and I are tired, and tell me, I get tired. I don't have kids. Don't plan on having kids. But I tell you, working with youth in the last five years, some of y'all kids, the same ones y'all just applauded, I've been doing the same thing. Don't do this. Don't do that. Sit down. Don't get up. Don't do this. It's going to burn. Don't do this. It's hot. Don't do this. You're going to regret it. I've been doing the same thing. So while y'all applauding, <laughs> y'all should be praying for us here. But this reality, seriously, though, this reality, this reality of, uh, of love and wrath. I remember getting uh, chastised by my parents. That's the word I'll use today. I remember being chastised by my parents. And they would always say, I'm doing this because what? Make this make sense. I am crying. Is that blood, Jesus? What is? <laughs> I'm doing it because I love you. Could you imagine God, instead of sending prophets, he just told them, I'm doing what I'm getting ready to do because I love you. They had disobeyed him so much, church, that God had no other choice but to combine a chastisement with love in order for his purpose to be fulfilled. They look at this and they could probably say, God, you would never do this. God, why would you do this? I thought you loved us. I thought you, and it's simply this, I do love you. That moment for me or for you as a parent or for you when you were a child, you never really understood what your parents were saying when you were going through it because it hurt. But in the end, what is the, always the reality? Man, they were right. So God is using this unique moment of sin to reconcile his people back to him. The, last, the next time we see this, we see it obviously in the text here, but the next time you and I see this, we see it done on the cross. We see this sin being worked out with wrath and love on the cross. 1 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this, For our sake God made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that he, in him, we might become the righteousness of God of God. See, love of God, love and the wrath of God, if you will, can be present at the same time. This is what's taking place in the text, church. The wrath of God is meeting the love of God for the sake of the thing that God constantly hates, sin. He hates it, church. Yet and still with you and I reflecting on this text and all the bad things that are to come, all of the, the, the destruction and disparity, all of that that's to come because of rebellion, yet and still you and I get a moment to reflect. And my question here today is to you is why do we still rebel? If we know we're going to be chastised, 
If we know we're going to be met with something that we don't want, why is it that we still continuously do this? See, the beautiful thing of the cross is a sinless Jesus. He stepped down and took the penalty of you and I. The very thing that we deserve, he put it all on himself and he took it to the cross for our sake. Isaiah 53 tells us this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, just as God was responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem, God is also responsible for the destruction and the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sake. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offsprings. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. On the backside of the cross, church, we see the love of God displayed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16 tells us. That love is displayed for us. God's love for us moved him to give Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. So we're not just looking at this, this lamentation today to just say, man, God's angry. I was talking to a buddy of mine about the text a couple weeks ago, and he, the first thing he said was, God's mad. Yes, he's mad, church. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? He was also so mad that he still, while being mad about the sins of the world, made a way for you and I to have eternity with him. What other God is mad and righteous and just? Adjust, adjust, adjustifying us in what he's doing. You can't find it any other way, or not in Buddha, not Muhammad, not anybody. Because probably the gods of this world or anybody else, what they say, once you do this, you got to do 15 other things to get it right. God is just asking for you to turn from your wicked ways. This is an amazing reality for us. This is an amazing thing that you and I get to see that at the cross, was wrath and love, and in the middle, he made a way for us when that connects. The interesting thing that we see in this text and in the reality of our world is this. Well, what, what God would send people to hell? Well, God doesn't send people to hell, church. In fact, when you were born, you and I, none of us are exempt from this. We were literally handed a one-way ticket to hell. What God did at the cross when wrath and love met, he took that ticket for you. And he purchased you. He's given you a way out, church. So when we look at this text here today, we get to see that this is not just God being mad. God is justifiably mad. And it's all because of sin. 
But church, if we hear that today, if we know the gospel, if we see what's happening in the text through uh, the, what's happening in Lamentations chapter 2, if we see all of this, my question to you is, when you hear the warnings in the word of the Lord, what would you do next? When you hear the warnings of the word of the Lord, how would you respond? Our third point here today is God is working to bring us to repentance. God is working to bring us to repentance. Lamentations 2 verse 19. Arise, cry out in the night, and at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. The suffering was severe. And the poet is writing to us and he's witnessing as he's watching, writing this, the suffering of hungry children on every street as this destruction is taking place. It's in this deep place of sorrow and lament, not knowing if God would ever bring them out or heal this city again. This beautiful thing that we get to see is that the first three things that we take out of Lamentations 19 is this, is we're called to arise. In the midst of all of these things taking place around us, we are called to arise. Arise instead of being downcast and hoping that healing will come from this world. We're called to arise and look to God. Cry out in the night. We're called to lament to the Lord. Lift our hands and our voice to the Lord and bring our questions before him to answer. We're called to cry out. For the Lord to be gracious towards each and every one of us. And the last thing we see here is we're called to pour our hearts like water. Church, we're called to bring our hearts before the Lord and be giving him control over all and any circumstances of our lives that are beyond our own power. This is what we're called to do when we look at the text. And some of you are probably like, well, how, Denzel, how could I arise? How could I cry out in the night? How can I pour out? How is all this possible? Why is God like this if he loves me? Well, it's a clear answer for that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says this. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. Everybody say two forms. There's two forms of chastisement taking place here, church. The first is instructive discipline. The next one is corrective discipline. Instructive discipline is when the Lord allows us to suffer for reasons that whether are known or unknown, but they ultimately bring him glory to himself. The second form of that discipline is corrective discipline. That corrective discipline is that of which comes from the suffering of our sins, the consequences of our sins. See, church, we don't look at this lament and take our uh, sorrows to the Savior for nothing. We don't look at this lamentation, if you will, and take our sorrows to the Savior for nothing. This is a clear indication for us 
to lament over our very own sin. Oftentimes, lamenting is lamenting. uh, You rarely find people telling you to lament over sin. Some scholars do, some pastors do, but more so they tell you to lament with those who are lamenting, right? Grieve with those who are grieving, mourn with those who are mourning, or lament over the sadness and the things of this world. But let me ask you this, church, when is the last time you lamented over the things that are stopping you from freely living for God? When is the last time you lamented over the thing that you know without a doubt in your heart? You know, we always say, search in me, oh God. (laughs) There's anything unclean in me, take it out. You know there is. We don't need God to give us a a threefold mirror to say, no, take this out, take that out, take this out, take that out. No, you know what's stopping you from living for him. You know the very road block in your road right now that's stopping you and slowly giving you the gas that you need to freely and fully live for him. So I ask again, when is the last time you lamented over your sin? This taking our sorrow to the Savior. When is the last time you grieved so much over your sin that you said, God, take it. I don't want it. God, take this from me. You see, church, this is a a unique thing that we get to look back on from 500 B.C. But how many of you know you don't have to wait 500 years from now? You can do it right now. You can give it to him right now. The harsh reality of that is, it's, too, it's a beautiful reality. The reality is, if you give it to him now and freely, freely devote your life to him and live for God like he's calling you to, there's reward in that. The reality that we're reflecting on today is when you don't, guess what? There's destruction that comes. Why? Because sin separates us from God and sin makes God angry, church. God has literally, what other God you know would give you a free pass out of hell? What other God would much rather take his son's life for your sake that you and I might be free of any of our sins, future, past, and wrong, uh, to present wrongs? What other God? You can't think of another God. Yet and still, this is what he is doing for us. Another harsh reality, church, if you read Revelations, God is very specific to churches then that didn't listen. He's, if you read Revelations chapter 2 and verse 3, uh, chapter 2 and verse, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, you will see just that. Literally, he gives them all of these instructions and these things. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. These are all the things that they're doing, and this is God's response to their sin and rebellion. He says, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. I will throw her out onto a sickbed. I will throw into them into great tribulation. I will strike her children dead. I will give to each of you according to your works. All of these things are taking place, church, and they're not fun things. If you read what God is saying in Revelations to this church, it's because these churches were rebelling. It's the same as what's taking place here in Lamentations. But Here's the thing, church. Why does it take for us to be scorned at by God? To realize that there's wrath and punishment for our sin. 
As the worship team comes out, I want us to be reflecting on these things, church, because it doesn't take all of this. It's not necessary. Have you ever been there as a parent and you say to your kids, it shouldn't take me to say it three, four times? Mom, I heard you. I was coming. It shouldn't take me to tell you five times. I remember hearing that as a kid so many times, church. The same with our faith. It, it shouldn't take God so many times to get your attention that he loves you, that he cares for you, that in him you'll be free, that in him you'll have everything you need. In him, he could provide whatever. In him, you'll be free of the sin of this world. In him, you find peace. In him, church, we find every single thing that we need. But just like this church, they didn't get it. They didn't understand until it was too late. And although Lamentations chapter 2 is sad. It's a reflection. It's a reflection for you and I to see that God is so good. That that doesn't have to be our present reality, church. That in the midst of chaos and all of the things of this world, we get to bring our pain, our sorrows, our guilt, our sin, our shames to the Father and leave it there. Church, I urge you today, I urge you to do just that. Don't wait for a moment for God to have to beat you across your head for you to understand that he loves you. We don't need another moment from God to say, hey, I love you so much, so I have to do this to you. Who wants that? Sounds self-inflicting. God wants us to be free of those things, church. This is a moment for us to look at this lamentation and say, man, I don't want that for my life. I don't want that to be my reality. But just as we don't want it, church, God doesn't want it either. And all, is he, all he is asking us to do is freely give him those things, whether it's idols, whether it's a, a bad relationship, whether it's things that you think no one sees, but he sees all, he hears all, he knows all. Whatever it is you're struggling with, church, the point of the wrath and the love of the cross was for you to leave it here and walk away free. So I asked, when was the last time you lamented over your sin? I asked you right now, if you're lamenting over something, this altar is open for you. If there's something you need to give to the sorrow, right, bringing our sorrow to the Savior, if you're bringing sin, shame, guilt, whatever it is, you can come and be free, church. This is what he's trying to draw out of this text for us. He wants us to realize, guys, there's a way out of this. You don't continuously have to do the same thing and get the same results and then expect a different ending. You know sin is bad. You know sin leads to death. You know sin leads to destruction. So why are you sinning? Why are we doing the complete opposite of what he's calling and asking us to do? I urge you today, church, leave it at the altar today. Leave it at the altar. Whatever you're lamenting over, leave it at the altar. 
If for you, you don't know what it means to be in right relationship with God, I urge you, have a conversation today. There's salvation here for you as well today. Whatever you need, this altar is open for you to come and receive today. And don't get me wrong when I say altar. If you want to walk up here and freely spend time and do business with God, that's between you and God. But he can do it right in your seat too if you're ashamed. If you're scared or timid or don't want to be seen, he can do it for you wherever you are. Don't think you got to come here to receive something from God. Other gods might tell you you got to do this or turn to the east or turn to the west. He's just saying, open your heart where you sit, lay, or stand. If that's you, I, I pray a blessing over your life. That you would walk freely into that because he wants you. He desires you. This is what it means, church. For us to bring our sorrows to our Savior. And I pray that we would do just that. And that we would know what it freely means when God is trying to bring us and working all things out for us in order for us to bring ourselves to repentance unto him for the things of this world, our sins, and or the things that we have allowed to get in our way to stop us from freely living for him. May it be so. Let us pray. Dear Holy and Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we're so grateful that you allow us to come into this place and seek out your truth through your word. Thank you. Not only are you present with us now, but you're alive. Your scriptures are alive. Your word is alive. So thank you for that. So Father, I pray right now, if there's anyone in this place under the sound of my voice, Father, if they're contemplating, if, it, if today's the day and you're tugging on their heart, Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do, Father. Speak to them right now, Father. Father, that this is not a manufactured moment. Father, this is not someone pumping or prying them to live for you. But, Father, it's actually you knocking on their hearts. And, Father, for those of us in here that have allowed things to get in the way of freely living for you, Father, will this be the space and the opportunity to repent to you, ask you for forgiveness for those things we have placed in our lives, Father, in place of you. Father, we love you. I pray as we continue on here in worship, Father, that this is not just a song on a screen, but it is our heart's cry that we need you, Lord. And we bow our hearts, we lift our hands, and we freely give it all to you. Father, we love you, we praise you, we give you all the honor and glory to you and you alone, Christ Jesus, that is due. Church, if you believe that, put your hands together and shout amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.